welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, I'm Ingrid Cochran, your host. Uh, Today's conversation is going to be um, a sensitive one. Um, We're going to talk about intersectionality in America. And um, our guest today is uh, Vernicia Crawford, who is the CEO of the Trauma-Informed Institute. And our conversation is really going to be in response to the recent um, news around how much trauma uh, girls in our country um, are experiencing currently. There have been several um, articles, news articles, and also books that have been dedicated to how girls in our country are struggling with mental health issues, experiencing violence, especially sexual violence, and um, and the impact of social media. And so the, the in- information that we're receiving now around um, the experiences that girls, especially adolescent girls in this country, um, and how they are really, uh, really being impacted by violence and trauma and poor mental health outcomes has been very interesting to me. And I wanted to dig more into this conversation. Um, uh, Earlier, well, last year, we talked with um, Donna Jackson Nakazawa, who had a a book that she recently uh, published uh, called Girls on the Brink. And we began this conversation about kind of the inner lives of girls in America. And one thing that stood out from that interview was with the girls that she followed in that book, that she found that there was extreme um, differences in experience when it came to girls of color. And so uh, overwhelmingly, girls are experiencing high levels of violence, trauma in, in in, in in our culture. But particularly, girls of color are experiencing a different level. And um, this is something that I've found in my own studies um, as I, um, you know, when I first started in my field, my focus was um, African-American parenting practices. And I often found that there was plenty of research that showed that African-American girls were experiencing extremely high levels of violence and trauma. And um, and so we want to explore that today. So first, I want to um, have Ms. Crawford introduce herself to the audience and, you know, just tell us about yourself and your work. Well, hi, everyone. It is an honor to be able to share space uh, with you, Ingrid, and for all of those who are listening. So my name is Vernicia Crawford, and I am the CEO of the Trauma Farm Institute. And we focus on um, helping organizations become trauma-informed. And that we do that in a couple different ways. We offer some trauma-informed professional certifications, as well as uh, professional development services, and then um, executive coaching that has a wellness focus. Um, and in addition to the work that we do at the Trauma-Informed Institute, uh, we recognized very quickly that our work extends beyond the workplace. Um, You know, everybody working um, are part of a family. And so our work also needs to extend into homes, families, and communities. So um, I have also uh, 
founded and launched uh, the BYE Foundation, which focuses on building community resilience and really focusing on five priority areas, which are parents and caregivers, pediatricians, schools, court systems, um, and small grassroots organizations, really looking at how those five different groups uh, can work better together to serve, better serve uh, families in need. Yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing your background. Um, so my first question is really what brought you to the work? I know myself, um, my experiences as a, as a child and um, overcoming those experiences really um, were a driver for me to get into this field. So what brought you into the field of, you know, trauma-informed education? And also, how did you feel the first time that you even learned about the impact of trauma or through the ACEs study or however you came to um, be aware of the impact of trauma in our society? So, you know, this question, I'm like, how far back do I want to go? Um, but I will start with a story. Um, when I was a freshman in college, I was taking a chemistry class. And um, at the time I was studying, my major was pre-kinesiology. And um, my professor, it was like a movie. My pre professor says, like, look to your left, look to your right. Like, somebody's not going to be here at the end of the semester. And I'm like, oh, Lord, I really hope that's not me. There's like 300 people in here. And um, we, you know, he kind of talked to us about, like, the athletic training program um, uh, at the university. And that only 17 people were going to be selected into this program. And I'm like, one class, my chemistry class has 300 people like how is this little short black girl going to be able to compete in a field that is male white dominated um and so i decided at that time you know i asked myself like what could i do to make myself more competitive and um i decided to go to massage therapy school so i was attending um UNC Charlotte full time during um, or I was taking night classes full time at UNC Charlotte and then going to massage therapy school full time uh, during the day for about six months. And it was very hard, but it was what I was committed to do to try to make myself more competitive to um, get one of those 17 slots. And so um, at through my practice with massage therapy, there was one client in particular that I'll never forget. And I feel like this moment is what really kickstarted my journey to learning more about trauma work. And um, it was she came in to uh, the, the facility to get a massage. And, um, you know, she's like, I'm, I'm, I've been having back pain for a really long time. And I don't know what the cause is. I've tried everything, physical therapy, acupuncture, like yoga, the whole nine. And I just I just can't get rid of it. So I know I'm not really going to feel that much better after uh, this session. Um, but this is just what I do for maintenance. So I'm like, I felt challenged when she said that. I'm like, no, you're going to feel better after I give you a massage. Right. And so, um, you know, I'm starting the process and um, I feel she never told me where her pain was in her back but uh when you're trained as a massage therapist you can tell where tightness and knots and muscle you know you know the tension that where muscles are uh where the tension are in muscles and so um I go over this area in her lower back and I'm like, is this where you're having the back pain? She's like, oh yeah, how did you know that? And I'm like, I can feel it. <laughs> 
And um, so we're just working through, I'm doing all of the the techniques that I've been taught. And this muscle does not want to budge. And I don't know what made me ask her this, but I asked her, how long have you been experiencing this pain? And so she says, it's been about five years. And my next question to her was, did anything happen five years ago that was really hard for you? Or is there anything that happened that could have started this? Was it a car wreck? And she immediately begins to take some really big, deep breaths after I ask her this question. And as she's taking these big, deep breaths, I can feel the muscle just slightly give a little bit. So I'm like, ooh, okay, I've hit a nerve. Um, And so she's really silent for a while. And then she shares with me, you know what? I've never thought about what happened five years ago and connected it to this pain. But five years ago, I lost my mother. And as she begins to tell me the story, I mean, tears are coming and I'm trying to be a professional, so I'm not supposed to have such an emotional release, but she's just sharing her story with me. And as she's sharing the story, this muscle continues to give. And I said, when you lost your mother, what did you what did you do? How did you deal with that? She said, I didn't. I never really dealt with it. I decided to just hurry up, pack up all of her things in the home. And I tried to just do away with it so I could just move on with my life. But I never really dealt with the fact that I lost my mother. And I did a lot of heavy work while, you know, during that period. And I said, well, I'm not at the time I wasn't studying to be a psychologist. I was just a massage therapist at the time. But what I told her was, well, this is probably where you have been holding that grief and the loss of your mother right here in your lower back. And it was at that moment, the the, the tension in that muscle completely released. And she's like, Vernicia, I have been having this pain for five years. I have went everywhere. And today is the first day that I've ever, number one, made the connection. And number two, I do not feel pain after this session that I've had with you. So that changed my whole life. I said, wow, what just happened? Um, I don't know what this was, but I know that I need to learn more and I need to dig. And so I started this journey of just ever learning, you know, knowledge. And I've been hungry reading every book, watching every documentary, taking every class and course to now uh, pursuing my PhD in psychology to specialize in trauma. And so that's what really started my journey and, and landed me where I am today. Yeah, there's so much there in, in that conversation. I mean, you know, especially since we're having this topic about about girls and, you know, uh, it's an intergenerational discussion, right? Girls and their mothers. There's this very clear connection that has been well documented being contentious, by the way. <laughs> but, um, right. but, but yes, how we, where we hold our, our trauma in our, in our physical bodies but also the connection between mothers and daughters. Uh, and so I um, thank you for sharing um, how do you, how you got to this space. Um, I, I definitely want to know, you know, when we think about um, like this topic around girls and, and, you know, or eventually women, right. Um, I want to give some context first, you know, what is intersectionality? So um, professor uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, who is an underling of a, uh, uh, Derek Bell, who was the kind of the pioneer of critical race theory. Um, she 
uh, is a law professor, um, just like Derek Bell was, and she came up with the term intersectionality. And it's essentially saying that vulnerability or, you know, privilege um, is not just about one's identity, but the intersectionality of many identities. And so when we look at the, the news that's coming in around girls, especially girls of color, what we're seeing is that this is an extremely vulnerable group because of these intersection, uh, the intersection between these different identities. What we're talking about is how girls in our society are struggling because of both um, well, girls of color, because of both racism and sexism. And um, I wanted to see, like, do you think that this is a real thing? Is intersectionality a real thing? And is this kind of the source of why girls of color are experiencing um, high rates of mental illness and um, and also, you know, the external, you know, sexual violence, violence in general, trauma. Um, where do you think that this this kind of perfect storm is coming from when it comes to girls of color? Mm, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of thoughts that come to my mind as I was listening to you. And the first thought that came to my mind was just this, this word vulnerability. Um, you know, I know we, we all love the Brene Browns of the world who, you know, talk about how important it is for us to be vulnerable and to lean into things, but there's another side to it that I don't think is shared, um, especially from when you're thinking about girls of color and women of color, um, we're already vulnerable. And so whenever I hear like lean into your vulnerability, I'm like, I can't be more vulnerable than I already am right now. Right. Like at times that no place feels safe. And, um, and so that word vulnerability, um, uh, when you can use your vulnerability as power to advocate, to lean in, to get what you need, that's great. But when you are living in a space where you are always constantly in a vulnerable space, that vulnerability actually is not uh, as powerful of a tool for our counterparts, for those who don't look like us. Um, so that's the, the the first thought. And so we're vulnerable to a lot of harm. We're vulnerable to a lot of abuse. We're vulnerable to a lot of judgment, shame, and, and guilt and all those things, which prevents us from actually being um, vulnerable about how we feel and our emotions and about what we need. Um, and so uh, it's almost like we're not allowed to be vulnerable individually. However, we are still one of the most vulnerable group of people. And so when you look at it from those two lenses, there's a lot of confliction there, right? Like there's a lot of like, wait, how are we even supposed to navigate? And I think just that statement alone can give you insight of why a young woman or a young girl of color, why her mental health would be challenged because it's hard for her to navigate and live in those two spaces at the same time. Yeah, and I... I, I definitely agree that vulnerability is um, is not a superpower um, for 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 girls of color. Mm -hmm. And when we look at the the big picture here in America, I always want to give historical context. 
Um, when we are talking about those girls who are most vulnerable, who we're talking about are African American girls, um, Indigenous girls, and um, Latina girls. That um, they have, they experience um, both racism and sexism in our society, and that it is obvious at this point that it is having a real impact on their mental health and well-being. Beyond the fact that these groups. Um, will grow into women who have um, the shortest life expectancy out of out of um, all other demographics of women. Um, they have, you know, the statistics are, you know, startling. They're most likely to experience child sex abuse. Um, with the statistics, with uh, African American girls being one in three, um, experiencing some type of sexual violence before they reach the age of eighteen. Um, they're more susceptible to media. Um, there's plenty of research that shows that um, when it comes to engaging, especially with music videos and things of that nature, that they're more likely to emulate the women of color that they see in, in the media, which is often rife with um, imagery that is um, not optimal. And so when we think about how we envision um, women of color in the media, they're often shown in stereotypical light. Uh, and as a, you know, I guess we've come a long way when it comes to media currently, but this has long been an issue for women of color. Um, but then when we get to the issue of sexual violence and sex abuse, um, one of the reasons why I'm in this work is because I'm a victim of child sexual abuse. And so I'm very connected to addressing trauma in children um, is that it's so uh, pervasive in communities of color um, because of, you know, all of the historical trauma that stems from, um, you know, sex trafficking, slavery, human trafficking. And so um, these conditions that have been made in our society historically have definitely um, been passed on through generations and are impacting girls today. Um, and so I'm, ex I'm, I'm not surprised by these uh, findings that are coming out now. Um, I've lived this life as a woman of color, as a girl of color. Uh, what I am surprised about is the, in, you know, the attention that's being given lately. Um, but there's always a clear connection from the past. If we have a society that doesn't value girls with the exception of commodities for the domestic labor that they can provide or you know, the free labor that they can provide or for the objectification of their bodies, um, then of course we're going to have um, poor mental health in girls. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts about um, the, the impact of racism when it comes to, to girls? Ooh, Ingrid. <laughs> um, the impact of racism when it comes to girls. So I, I will speak from my own truth and, you know, a, a place where I have lived. So growing up for me, um, I'm one of 10. I have a really large family. My mom and dad together decided to have five boys and five girls. And I'm the fourth oldest out of the 10. And um, I remember my my parents, they're like, oh, yeah, she's she's like she's like the smart one, one of the smart ones. So there was some pressure for me to 
um, exceed and excel. And I mean, immediately became a perfectionist and, you know, um, just having to do everything right, you know, so suffered and dealt with all of the things, imposter syndrome, you know, people pleaser, like the whole nine. But I was the one that had to make it right. I was the one who had to be great. And so with that pressure, um, and I love my parents, that this is no fault to them at all. Um, You know, I was placed in classes where I was either the only black girl or um, you know, there may be one other black girl in the class. And I love my my friends from, you know, back way back then, you know, elementary, middle and high school. But the majority of my uh, close friends were white. And um, I remember being in spaces with them and them saying things like, oh, Vernicia, you're not like the other black girls. Um, I've been called the pretty black girl before, or you you speak so well to be a black girl. And not only were, was there already expectations from my own parents um, and family, but then there was just this this expectation from my white counterparts to to be better than or higher than or, you know, not like the other black women or the black girls or the black people. Um, and you can't say anything in those spaces because it's just you. You feel very alone. You can't say like, hey, that's actually not okay to say. I, I didn't have the language to to intervene or interject. And I also didn't want to not have friends. So it felt like um, being silenced a lot about how I really felt about some of those comments around my race. Um, and so when you grow up that way, I mean, from all the way from elementary, all the way to, you know, high school, that's 13 years of my life where I'm in a space where I'm silenced about and I don't feel comfortable or safe to even, number one, try to advocate for myself or educate or whatever. I just have to go with the flow because um I don't know what else to do. I don't have tools to 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 deal with this. And I I also want to um I want to be great. I want to be smart. I want to achieve. I want to do and be all of these things. So when it comes to racism, we experience it at alarming rates. Sometimes we don't even realize it. And as a kid, you don't have you don't really know that it's happening at times. You have one version of it where it's very extreme, right? We see the videos, we hear the stories. Um, and those aren't the things that cause the most damage. When you're a, a, a girl, a young girl of color, it's quite consistent. And it's small, it's these microaggressions, it's these things that we are experiencing at a very young age. Um, and it's not talked about, it's just completely ignored. Um, so I think for me, I knew that I was a black girl. I knew that according to my peers, I was a different type of black girl. And so I had this pressure and expectation to kind of live up to this picture that they painted of me. And that in the long run prevents you from really doing like the deep self work of like knowing who you are and embracing who you are and loving everything about who you are because you have spent the majority of your years, your early years, trying to be this image um, of a person that others around you have created for you. Um, and this has not been um, 
it didn't really hit me as strong as it has now until I became a mother. Because mm -hmm. now I'm raising a little black daughter and I'm like, oh my Lord, how am I going to navigate her through this? Um, <laughs> she's waving at me behind my computer, but um, how, how am I going to help her navigate through this? Because it's the very same thing is happening to her. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll pause there. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, you telling your story when it comes to like experiencing racism and the microaggressions that come along with that, it's like a constant chipping away. Um, and racism forces um, parents, you know, when you said no fault of your own um, when it comes to your, your parents, but it forces parents to go through a process of racial socialization, right? So what does it mean for you to perform your Blackness or what does it mean to perform you know, what it means to be an, an indigenous um, right. girl, what it means to be a Latina. And so it's it's important to to first acknowledge that, that the pressure of othering a group means mm -hmm. that they have to perform their race. So you have to perform your Blackness. Uh, and then others expect you to perform. So people outside of your race expect you to fit into a mode of what it means to be Black mm -hmm. um, or um, whatever ideas they have around any racial group. And that's pressure it doesn't allow you to be your full self. And we haven't even gotten to uh, sexism yet, right? <laughs> so the the pressure to embody Blackness. And what I feel is also detrimental is that when you get angry, right? When you say you felt silenced, that or when you, or even when you get sad or when you want to, you know, push back on these narratives that people are placing upon you because of racism, then you become labeled as difficult or angry. Mm -hmm. And so often when we see kind of this angry Black woman trope, it is the reflection of trauma that has been experienced that is coming out as anger mm -hmm. um, as opposed to sadness, because again, you have to kind of perform your race. And so um, little Black girls aren't allowed to cry, mm -hmm. right? They, yeah. they have to uh, project anger or to push back. And that may be the only uh, avenue they have for their emotions to come out. So, um, yeah. so yeah. That makes me think about like a, a couple different things, but I mean, I, you know, I wrote down the words like being heard, being seen, and then just being believed. I think that there were many times in my life and lives of other black girls that, that have told me these stories where you know, we give tools like if something happens to you, tell an adult. But what happens when a little black girl, look a black or a brown girl, does what you tell them to? They they use the tools, but it doesn't work for them. And that happens more times than people would like to admit, where when a young girl of color says something, she's not believed. And I think, um, and we may have to go into this a little bit deeper after the break, but I believe it's because, you know, Black women are seen as strong and resilient. And so if you're strong and resilient, then you shouldn't be angry. You should be able to manage your emotions well. And um, that pressure, our young Black girls are seeing Black women, adults, be that, portray that. Um, and we're doing that to navigate racism and sexism in the workplace and in society. And so... Um, they they are experiencing what we are experiencing at the adult level. And so it's 
this feeling of not being seen, not being heard, and no one believing you when you do finally actually muster up the courage to share your truth, you are then again silenced. So that alone causes a lot of um, suppression of feelings. And when you suppress feelings, when you suppress emotions, when you suppress experiences and you don't have people or community to share this stuff with, the body will hold it. It's going to be held in the body some way. And then that, all the science says, it points it to illness and early death. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And we'll, we'll, when we come back from the break, we'll talk a little bit more about kind of those narratives, angry black woman, and then how, uh, you know, women of color model this behavior for girls of color and, and what that looks like intergenerationally. Um, so we'll be right back after the break. Thank you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past. On history, culture, and trauma, Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We're on the pulse of the world with great shows and hosts. The Voice America Health & Wellness channel is also on Twitter. We've got ideas to keep you healthy, breaking health news, and more. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAMHealth. That's at VoiceAMHealth. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. 
Thanks for joining us. We are back. Um, we have been talking with Bernicia Crawford, CEO of the Trauma Informed Institute. Uh, in our first um, segment, we really begin to dive into, you know, the impact of racism on on girls of color. And we talked a little bit about, you know, um, kind of the angry black girl um, stereotype and the microaggressions that are really impacting girls of color. Um, and there were a couple of things that I wanted to kind of delve into, uh, especially around kind of racial socialization and that process and how um, impactful it can be on um, young people of any race. But definitely um, when it comes to intersectionality, we're talking about girls who are, who are essentially dealing with both racism and sexism. And so there is this process of both racial socialization and gender socialization that um, girls of color go through. Uh, and and um, Vernicia, earlier you talked about how, um, you know, women of color are modeling for, for girls. And it made me think about my own mother and how strong she had to be. Uh, and, you know, when we talk about women of color, we often use the word strong, but at the end of the day, with the research showing the impact on mental health and physical health with there being, um, you know, early death and shortening of life expectancy and higher rates of mental health issues, especially depression, anxiety, um, and other kind of stress-related diseases. You know, the cost of this so-called strength is, is, is real. And so let's talk a little bit more about that about how women of color are modeling what it means to be strong women for girls and what kind of message that sends. Yeah, I mean, I motherhood is what really changed me. It really did. Motherhood taught me, oh my goodness, I do not need to be perfect for everybody and I do not need to fit this picture that's been painted or this mold or this image or live up to all of these expectations of people around me. That's what I did to survive. That is not what I want my daughter to be doing. And I think many of us adult women of color are still surviving. And so um, it's not strength. It's not resilience. We are doing what we got to do to make sure that we are okay and that our families are well taken care of and that, you know, no one gets harmed in the process. And that is very taxing to just have to think about every single day. What, you know, to think about how, like when I enter a space, how will I be received? And what are all the things that I need to do again, to be heard, seen and believed and little black girls, have to go through that all the time without the tools, without the, without, you know, all the life experiences. And so us black women having adult women having to navigate that and deal with that, you know, we ourselves are still trying to fight a system um, that somewhat feels like has forced us to have to be this way just to, you know, um, just have like a basic normal standard life, but it comes at a high cost. And so um, I think that when we adult black women shift and say, you know, not today, <laughs> I'm just not, I'm not gonna do it today. I'm, I'm not going to 
show up with a smile and be happy and nice and give you the best customer service or, you know, be all these things that you want me to be. You know why? Because I'm tired. I'm frustrated. I'm exhausted. I'm having to manage 15 million things. None of the expectations has changed, but I am dealing with three to four to five times as much, like more times um, or times the amount of stress and trauma and adversity than anybody else around me. Yet I am still expected to perform above and beyond, right? So there are many examples of this in the workplace. Um, but if it's happening where we are, it is 100% happening where our girls are. And um, kids and children are more vulnerable than anybody because their brains are still being developed. Um, and they it really is true. Like you, you can only be what you see. And so if you don't see it, then it's hard to to be it. And that, I think, is us adult Black women. We haven't seen, you know, the the Black woman say no, right? We haven't seen, you know, the Black woman take care of herself over others. We haven't seen that in our mothers and our grandmothers. And so that's why it's challenging for us. But now we have a duty and a responsibility to share and showcase something different for our young um, Black girls and other girls of color. Yeah, and this is where the real, this is where we get into how sexism shapes us because um, because of racism, we do not experience your, what we, what we would like to call kind of femininity in this, in this country, right? Women of color have always had to work We've always had to support not just our families, but, you know, the families of, um, you know, white families, right? In, in, in the past, we were, again, domestic labor for free or, you know, I've, I've done a lot of, um, again, reading throughout history where there have been actual policies that say that, you know, Black women have to work because there was they were low on domestic labor. So if you don't have a job, you can't be a, a housewife. Right. And then, of course, even before that, you know, there's slavery where mm-hmm. it's very clearly, you know, the expectation to work and to avail yourself, your body to others, you know, a- across the board when it comes to um, breeding, when it comes to being a wet nurse, when it comes to, um, you know, your body itself on the line. And so um, this has been the reality, you know, uh, all throughout our history. And it is passed along through generations. Um, and that's the same when it comes to indigenous women and when it comes to um, Latinas, especially around um, trafficking um, and uh, again, labor, uh, you know, it free or just wage theft. So we're not paid the same. And this is when we get into sexism. This is where we're in the people pleasing place where we self-sacrifice for the men in our lives or to work, to to put uh, food on the table. Um, But we have these, uh, you know, rules around what it means to be feminine in our society where we have to be soft. We have to be nice. Um, And our experiences don't line up with that. So then we are then kind of uh, we don't get the benefits of femininity in our society. Um, which is an interesting place to be in. This is where this intersectionality comes into play. Um, When it comes to sexism and the expectations around what it means to be be a woman or um, to be a mother, um, 
what do you think is the real um, issue there? Like when it comes down to it, how does intersectionality impact femininity and womanhood? You know, I feel like it's hard to to win in this area. It is really hard to be successful and soft. It's hard to be, um, you know, a black woman who's liked versus a, a, a and appreciated and versus a black woman who's going to get the job done. It always feel like it's black or white. White. You're either this or you're that. And um, and you know, I also I want to take a step back and and um, share. You know, you were talking about like dating all the way back to slavery. How black women had to mother white children, right? And this was like even after slavery, right? This was like before the civil rights movement. Black women had to nurse white babies, right? Like they had to provide milk from their own breasts, right? And so that is something that I believe is deeply embedded into our um, um, our history that we as Black women, we help all, right? Like, although not a lot of people help us, but we help all, right? So if we win, every single person wins. It, it makes me think about the women's uh, rights movement. That was never about Black women. It was about white women and, and what they wanted to do. But they said, they said, oh, it, I mean, Black women, they're, they're women, they're Black, but like they can help us with our cause. And so we did move the women's movement forward. But white women reaped the majority of those benefits. Black women were still at that time didn't have, you know, the same amount of access or equal rights as we did, you know, during that time period. And so there's always this sacrifice that we make. Um, there's always this give, this take, this use and abuse um, type of culture that we live in on a day-to-day -day basis. And it even makes me think back to, you know, how slave masters, they were the the first, not not the first, but they themselves were human traffickers, right? Like, let's just call it what it is. And so the challenges that we see today, it's the same exact thing as, as what was happening before. So nothing has really changed. That system has remained, remained intact. It is still going strong. And um, I think right now our young girls have access to so many images, so many things that they are seeing that it's really hard for them to decipher what they should be, who they should listen to. You know, I also think about how, you know, you mentioned how, you know, we back in those, the slavery days, and even now as a human child, you don't have control over your body. Somebody is controlling your body. We're seeing that now with all women right now, right? With everything happening in the government. But this is what gets me about women of color and girls of color. When we do take control over our body, and we choose to showcase it in a way that we uh, want to, and it feels comfortable for us, we are then told you're over-sexualizing yourself, right? Like you're then shamed, then you're, you're, you're then blamed. I'll never forget um, someone telling me that my, my shorts were too short or my tank top, like you're showing, you're, you're showing too much of your body. Well, my clothes just fit me nicely. And I'm, even now to this day at the age 33, 
I'm very aware and uh, sensitive to to what I'm wearing because I can't wear a pair of shorts and a big T-shirt and it be fine. But a, a girl that does not look like me and who doesn't have my body could get away with wearing a short and a big old T-shirt and she'd be fine. And nobody thinks about this at all. Um, and this is true for our high school girls. These are real stories, actually, that, you know, they have shared with me. Like I get stopped by my male teachers for wearing the same pair of pants that someone who doesn't look like me, a white girl, she can wear the same exact thing and she doesn't get stopped. She doesn't get sent home. And so um, it's almost like this society, again, it has not, the system has not changed. It just, it has evolved. And there is this conditioning of, uh, of the mind for young girls of color, which is you will do what what you need to do to be successful or you will do what we want you to do right like that's what it feels like and so it's where where does the space for a a girl to be feminine and a girl for her to be passionate about who she is and embrace all of what where is to me femininity is about choice where is that option when you are a young woman of color? You don't have it unless you fight for it, become aggressive with it, be assertive with it, and then you're again labeled angry. So it just feels like it's hard to win in this area when we talk about this. Yeah, I we you know there's so many examples of the kind of the over policing of young girls' bodies in school settings, in community settings. Um, the lack of safe passage for young girls in community, especially young girls of color with catcalling, um, sexual aggression, um, sexual violence. And so these clear threads in a young girl's life being very much um, kind of, you know, over and over again, we were seeing because I'm Black, I'm limited in this way because I'm uh, a girl, I'm limited in this way. And when we add the two together, I'm experiencing extremely restrictive environments where I am I'm more likely to, to be abused and more likely to be used. Um, so with all that is impacting girls of color, like what is the, what are the solutions? How do we make uh, our country a better country for girls of color, especially when based on what we're we're saying here, I mean, we talk about, you know, you talked about community resilience. Our community resilience lies in girls, um, all girls, but especially girls of color because of that intergenerational um, channel where those girls are going to raise their children and create communities through um, the love that they have for themselves and how they pass along the, what they receive from their ancestors. So if we have a clear understanding that women and girls are the cornerstone of community um, through the role of caregiver um, and through, you know, even just the, the birthing process, right? Then um, what does it mean for us in the future? How do we create better conditions um, for girls of color? So this will be a, um, a, a two-part answer, I will say. There is some work internally that we have to do as like the Black community. And this has nothing to do with 
anyone who's who don't identify as that <laughs> right like there are there is work that we have to do within ourselves and that is to um discontinue the things that has been passed down from generation to generation um we do have to adjust how we um parent and mother and nurture our daughters we literally have to become what it is that we um didn't see ourselves which is why this is so hard but the intergenerational work like there has to be at some point a generation has to make a change it has to make a shift and that has to be us right now right and so that does mean us saying no it doesn't mean that we start to live like a luxurious life and like going on these lavish trips and you know i mean you can you can um but it what it really means is like we have to really show what it means to take the power back um for us like if 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 we do want to lean into our femininity what does that mean right and if we don't what does that look like too and at the end of the day how are how do you um make a choice and feel comfortable with it despite what everyone else expects of you as a little girl or a woman of color right so that's the that's part one of this, that there's a lot of inner work within our own community, communities of color that we have to do. And then the second part to that is looking at how um, women and girls are treated um, in specific settings. So the, the one that I think about most often, um, I think of two, I think of schools and I think of, you know, healthcare. And I saw this video the other day and it was this woman, black woman, she was you know, in labor about to have a baby. And she's like, hey, I need this. I need this. Uh, hey, can you do it? And nobody's listening to her. You know, all the nurses and, uh, you know, around her saying like, oh my gosh, her her blood pressure is high. And oh my gosh, she needs this. And oh my gosh, she needs this. And she's like, hey, can can somebody listen to me, please? Like, can you get me what I'm asking for? And it wasn't until uh, another doctor, it was a white male doctor who came in, entered the room and said, can y'all just give her what she's asking for, like what she says she needs? And this white nurse looks up and says, well, we can't do that because, you know, she has X, Y, Z. You know, she's at risk for all of these things. And so he asks her if she was white, would she be at risk for it? She says, no. He said, so make her white on paper and give her what she needs. And when I saw this video, I was like, oh, I felt so seen. I felt so heard. Because that interaction happens a lot. I'll never forget, even myself, I went to the doctor for stomach pain. And um, I'm like, I've been having my stomach, I don't know what's going on. And, you know, they asked me the questions, when, were your, when was your last cycle? Are you pregnant? I say no, I give them the date. And I was still forced to take a, pregn a pregnancy test. I'm like, you know, in order to be pregnant, you got to do something, right? Well, that thing hasn't been done. So I know that I'm not pregnant, <laughs> but I was still forced to take it. So I think about, you know, how we treat women of color, girls of color, when we say and express what we need, like that part of how we are served needs to change. When a young black girl says she being bullied, she's being bullied even though she may be the bigger girl and she may seem more aggressive, you need to investigate and you need to believe that that is happening and treat her as if her voice is valid. Because I think 
those two that like that is the thing that is not happening to our girls of color and it could be because of all of these preconceived notions of the strong the black the resilient and we can take 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 but we are we again no matter what st statistic you pull we are the most vulnerable group so if we are the most vulnerable most vulnerable group why would we not be the group that is listened to the most, but we are not? And that is from my experience. And I think every research and study will, will align with that as well. Yeah, I, I definitely, you know, resonate with that, you know, that uh, very clear uh, contradiction. You know, the research shows that we are extremely vulnerable. Um, however, our treatment is not with, we're not treated with like kid gloves, we're, we are experiencing higher levels of, of abuse and isolation and um, not just now, but also our, our ancestors experienced that our mothers experienced it. And, and so we do have to do our due diligence to make sure that our daughters don't experience it. And that means that we need to model. And so when we think about intergenerational transmission, it's many ways that it happens, but one of the ways is social learning that girls will model themselves after the women in their environment, especially if those women are the same race. And then, of course, that's survival parenting, that we are parenting in a way that's saying, hey, life is hard. And it's even harder because you're a girl. It's even harder because you're black or brown and that we need to adjust how we um, how we parent and um, we need to adjust how we also see ourselves and model what it means to put yourself first. Um, and um, so this conversation I think has been awesome. I wanna thank you for joining us and um, hopefully, you know, all of the information that's coming out around um, the outcomes for girls, especially girls of color in this country is helping people to see kind of this, this secret world that they may not be aware of and that how uh, it's very important that we, um, you know, that we have a real understanding uh, that if we want to address this vulnerability, then we have to have a different way of interacting with, with girls, especially girls of color. So yeah. thank you so much, Ms. Crawford. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate the time that we've been able to share together. <laughs>